So, um, it's so good to be here, and um, we're going to look through a series here together called Help My Unbelief. It's based, on a, it's, it's based on a passage of Scripture in the book of Mark. The book of Mark has this incredible, um, this incredible story about this arguing that breaks out, and the arguing breaks out um, between the disciples, some of the religious teachers, the crowds have gathered around, and there's enough here, there's enough um, kind of volume and noise that um, Jesus uh, notices what's going on. They see Jesus, the crowd rush over to Jesus, and Jesus said, so what's all the arguing about? And um, one of the men in the crowd spoke up, and he said, there's this guy, and he has brought his child, and the child has a demon. And the demon um, continues to seize him and throws him to the ground violently, and then he foams at the mouth, and then he grinds his teeth, and then the demon makes him to go rigid. So we know it's a toddler, right? I mean, we already know that. Um, and so, the man says, so I asked your disciples to pray for him and to deliver him from this demon, and they couldn't. And so now they're arguing about it. And Jesus says to them something so incredible, so, um, I mean, talk about wanting to just evaporate and disappear, Jesus looks at them all and He says, you faithless people, how much longer must I be with you? <laughs> you imagine that? You're like, Jesus, can you help us out? We've got a situation here. And Jesus is like, how much longer must I be with you? This is like torture. I can't handle one more minute. How much, how much longer must I put up with you? And then He says, bring the boy to me. And they brought um, Jesus, the boy, and when the evil spirit saw Jesus, he threw him to the ground violently. And by the way, try to get this through your mind. As American Christians that are pretty comfortable, this is kind of hard for us to visualize. This is not uncommon and not unusual around the world. Um, not exactly sure why, but um, this is fairly, fairly familiar around the world. So, the demon throws the boy on the ground and he's writhing around, he's foaming at the mouth, everything that they had described that the demon had been doing. And um, the man said ever since he was a little boy, the spirit uh, 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 even throws him into the fire or the demon throws him into the water and he's trying to kill him. He's trying to kill my son. And um, by the way, this whole episode is wrapped around the demons tried to help him and they couldn't. He, they, or the, uh, the demons. The disciples tried to help him, and they couldn't. They failed. That's The whole thing is wrapped around the failed disciples who couldn't do this. And um, so the man says, have mercy on us. And then he says something pretty profound that Jesus also doesn't like. He says, help us if you can. I mean, can you picture, I'm not sure exactly Jesus' disposition, but we get an idea when he says, how long am I going to have to put up with all these people? They turn to him and they say, I mean, I'm not sure, Jesus, but we're kind of here hoping together that you would have mercy on us and also help us, but really, honestly, only if you can. And Jesus follows that up with what you could imagine. What do you mean, if I can? 
what do you mean if I can? Of course I can. And then he says, anything is possible if a person believes. Anything's possible if someone believes. And then we see this profoundly interesting, complex response from the father of the boy who is demon-possessed. Check this out. The father instantly cries out, I do believe, but help me overcome what? Help me? My unbelief. Now, you guys are super sharp. Every Sunday I, th- I think to myself, this group is getting sharper and sharper. If I asked them to scooch in for other seats, they would do it. I already know. But look what we have here. I do believe, but what does he need help with? His unbelief. So we got ourselves a situation here. And today, what I'm going to do is try to kind of diagnose and and maybe do a little coaching through what this idea of belief means. When we talk about receiving Jesus, we talk in terms of believing and receiving. But what do we mean when we say believe? What does that actually mean? How is it possible for somebody to respond to Jesus who says, what do you mean? I mean, maybe the guy's nervous, right? Jesus just said, why would you say something like, if I can help you, right? Maybe he's tense, maybe he's, he's, got, he's in crisis, the boy has already been, uh, again, this demon has taken control of his own child, but he says, I do believe, but I need help. I need help overcoming my unbelief. Now, when I, if I were to ask you, what is the greatest sin? I think many of us could probably come up with something that we would believe is a really, probably a good bet, worse sin. Uh, I'm not sure. I think some of the things that might come to the surface, some, maybe sexual sin, it's a sin against one's own body. Maybe someone might say um, division in the body of Christ because it divides, it, it doesn't sin against my own body, but against the body of Jesus, the church. Some people might say it's murder. Ending someone's life has got to be the worst thing someone can do. Others might say it's not ending their life, it's torturing their life. Maybe sex trafficking innocent people. There's all kinds of terrible diseases. Some would say cheering against the Dallas Cowboys. Worse sin. Some would say that. Uh, how about some of you might just jump all the way to its blasphemy. Blasphemy, once you do that, you're out of luck. But at the root of blasphemy, you look a little bit under the surface and you're going to see something that lands as likely the worst sin a human being can, com- can commit, and it's the sin of unbelief. You can read Jesus dealing with, confronting, and challenging His people uh, and, and the people that are around Him who are um, expressing this unbelief. And personally, I've experienced some of what, and I can identify with some of this. I mean, one example of how I can identify with the ups and downs of believing and then not believing so much and then believing a lot and then believing a little is uh, just a simple situation like this where somebody needs a healing and I believe that God can heal, but I don't necessarily expect that He will, right? And it's like, well, do I believe? Do I not believe? Do I not believe enough? Is it supposed to be a mustard seed or am I supposed to have like a basket of mustard seed? <laughs> mustard seed? I mean, how much faith do I know? And I also recognize that there are times where I trust and treasure Jesus, but not very well and not all the time. 
Or there are times where I obey Jesus, but then sometimes I consider why I'm obeying, and it's not always for the right reasons. I think about the times where I know Jesus, but uh, I, don't always, I don't always enjoy Him the way that I should, not all the time. And whether you're a lifelong Christian, or maybe you're just kind of dipping your toes into the Christian faith, you're just starting out on your relationship with Jesus, a crisis of faith is possible. It is possible to follow Jesus the rest of your life, but it's also possible to fall away from a um, meaningful relationship with Jesus. And for many of us, we believe the Christian faith for so long, and we believed all the truths, and yet we have looked at Scripture's plain meaning, and we've done what we've wanted to do. We've looked at the um, question, or we even question God's goodness at times, even though He provided the assurance of His goodness by sending His very own beloved Son, but there are still times where we believe that my troubles are bigger than God's love and His goodness. And these kind of ups and downs, this back and forth is quite natural. So what are we going to do with these tensions? And very simply, I just want to throw this out there, it's important for us who believe, who are walking with Jesus and trying to grow in our faith, to embrace the tension. Just embrace it. Embrace that there are tensions, not just in the Christian faith, but there are tensions in following Jesus. In other words, the Christian faith in following Jesus is not clean and cut and dry and black and white. Where are all my black and white people out there? Black and white. Just, you just like it cut and dry, black and white. And when it gets grayish, who gets nervous? Anybody get nervous? Um, listen, if you grew up in, in a legalistic church family or a legalistic organization or a legalistic family, one of the reasons, in my opinion and from my experience, is because it's easier. It's easier. Black, white, rules, regulations, on, off, it's just easier. When you start giving out grace to people, it gets a little messy. It's a little bit shady sometimes, a little bit sketchy. So, that's uh, certainly not justifying, but that's one of the reasons. And I know that there are a lot of us who have our and yet. What does that mean? We get stuck. Some, some of us, maybe you're watching in online, maybe you're sitting here among us in, in our present here in person, and you're stuck at the very beginning because of the claims of the Bible and who this Jesus is. You haven't yet even been able to get across the line to believe it all. It's also possible that some of you are just struggling with the questions of evil and hurt and pain or even the existence of God. And still others, there's another category of just a skeptic who's just generally suspicious of everyone and everything. And there's this tension that you just can't break through. I just can't see it all black and white. And here's what I want you to know today. The answers to the big questions exist. Answers to these tensions exist. And I hope to show you that it's worth risking what you risk in order to believe. Wholeheartedly, genuinely believe. It's worth it. It's worth the risk. Now, if for those of you who are kind of a black and white person, or maybe you're just a take it or leave it person, there used to be the saying, the, um, uh, God said it, I believe it. What's the rest of it? That settles it, right? There are some people who live like that, and they're like, I don't even ask the questions. I want to caution you that you may not be asking the questions. It doesn't mean the questions go away. 
And some people don't ask the questions because we're afraid of where it might take us. I remember having these really meaningful conversations about our faith with my mother-in-law before she passed away. And, you know, we would, this, this goes on for week after week after week and eventually years after year. And she said, you know, Dan, it's, 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 I, I just want to tell you something. That when you're talking about things that need to change and when you're talking about the way that, you know, we're learning and growing together, it's not as easy as you think to ask these questions that you're asking because... It's very possible that the answers that I come to forces me to look at the possibility that for a long, long time I was wrong or we were wrong. And so it's so, under, it's so clear why some people just don't ask the questions about the Christian faith or ask the questions about our experiences that don't add up, right? God's good, innocent people suffer. Is there tension there? We should embrace that tension. We should embrace it. We should be honest that that is a tension. And if there's no tension in your faith, it's important for you to ask this question, is it possible that I'm just blindly following and you don't have to blindly follow Jesus? You don't have to blindly uh, fall in line with the Christian faith. God Himself, this is so cool, He's not afraid of your questions. You can't stand up, look God in the eye, and very reverently but honestly say to God, I have a question and I don't know the answer and it's causing me a great deal of harm. God is not going to be shocked and asked to reschedule your appointment so He can do some research. He's not afraid. He's not afraid of us. He's not afraid of our questions. So don't be afraid of all the questions. Rather, just spend at least a minute of your time. Spend it. Now, so inspecting the questions means that we're not ignoring the questions. Inspecting the questions means that we're not avoiding the questions. And that's what this series is about. It's not about answering every question. Instead, and it's also not about addressing every doubt that somebody might have. Instead, it's a look deeper under the surface of a more fundamental question that everybody has to eventually ask, which is, what is belief? What does it mean for me to believe? What does it mean for me to actually embrace wholeheartedly Jesus for myself? What does it mean to believe? And my goal is to help you see that belief isn't just a blind faith. You don't have to close your eyes and turn your back to the questions or the tensions. That it's possible that if you ask the questions right, questions can be building blocks in your faith rather than stumbling blocks away from your faith. And I hope you're with me on this. I'm so relieved that our faith encourages questions and then provides answers and doesn't say, hey, no questions. No questions. I mean, you're probably with me, right? We're at a stage of our culture where when someone who's a religious leader starts saying, no questions... We already got ourselves a problem, right? So asking these questions can be building blocks rather than stumbling blocks in our faith. So you think back about that father with the child who has the demon. Is that father crying out to Jesus because his faith is failing? Or is the father crying out to Jesus because his faith is flourishing? And... Um, it's so important for us to, to see this 
He says, I do believe, but help me. He's saying, I depend on you, Jesus. You're the only one who's going to be able to help me with my child who has a demon, and you're the only one who's going to be able to help me with my faith or to help me deal with the struggle I'm having in this disbelief. I am pulled, he's saying, in two directions. He's saying there's this tug-of-war happening. I have a sense of trust in you, and yet I have a sense of fear about the outcome, about what might transpire with my child. He knows to whom he should look, but he does so in weakness. I mean, isn't that our story? We know to whom we should look, but how do we do it? We do it in our weakness. We look weakly. We trust weakly sometimes. We have faith that is weak. There is a massive tension that is revealed here. A massive tension. In Mark chapter 9, verse 24, and the tension is our state of being for all of this life, is to live as a believer. This tension as a, for a believer is something that we just learn to live in. It doesn't have to torture us, but we have to live in it. We are born sinners. Get this. We're born sinners, incapable ourselves of pleasing God, and yet God calls us out to be holy as He's holy. Well, did He, did he not know who He was talking to? Right? God, You told me I'm fully depraved and sinful, and I need You to kind of sanctify me, not just save me, but to sanctify me. And then You recognize and have extended grace to me because I'm going to need it. Where sin abounds, grace abounds, so we're going to expect these people to sin. And then God says, so be holy even as I am holy. Wait, what? Again, a little bit of uh, tension that we're going to live with. We are very finite, limited creatures who are seeking to understand an infinitely uh, supreme God. How does that work? How do those two things go together? Again, we need God to help us understand those things. We trust that God is good, although the world He created and everything, uh, uh, the world He created and sovereignly rules over, which is, of course, everything, is full of evil and brokenness. So evil and brokenness is in the world, but God rules and reigns over it. How do we sort that out? Well, we think in terms of scientific evidence and proof and logic, but our holy book tells of miracles. Our holy Bible tells us about supernatural occurrences. We believe that God is omnipresent, but we don't see Him and sometimes rarely feel Him anywhere. We have one God and three persons, but we don't have three gods. How many of you ever get stuck on that one, right? We have the Trinity who is three in one, but no, we don't have three gods. Stop saying that. So these tensions build up and these questions. So to a mature believer, a mature believer, this is what I want to ask you to consider. Consider embracing these tensions and learning to live with it. To the modern thinker, of course, if you're a modern thinker, you say this whole religion stuff, it is just intentional stupidity. They just close their eyes, blind faith, lean over and fall off the cliff, hope for the best. That's what the modern thinker will tell us, right? You need evidence. I love this one too. You need science and you need evidence. And then I'm like, well, why does the science work? Oh, I know, because there's a supreme creator who made it work. Love that one. But to modern thinkers, believing in God is not much different than believing in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. It's just as crazy, honestly. 
So for those who are honest about their faith, for those who are honest about their faith, these tensions are real. How many of you are with me? Are you with me on tensions? Do you get that? It's, it's, it's there. And mature believers just learn to live with it and learn to kind of deal with it in, even though it's a combination of belief and unbelief. Now, God is going to help us. God wants to help us uh, to make progress in this area. And I hope to serve as kind of a tool in the hand of God to help us make progress and um, move forward. So, how do we overcome these tensions? Well, at least two quick ways. Number one, ask your questions like a child. And I don't mean like the kind of child that's at the stage of their life where they're just asking the question over and over and over and over. I don't mean that kind of child. I mean the kind of child that's old enough that is asking questions a particular way, that they are inquisitive, that they are asking the question in order to learn. They are asking the question out of a desire to understand, out of a disposition of trust that they're going to get an answer from you that's reliable. So, we ask our questions like a child. Children are not asking questions to just challenge you, right? Uh, children aren't asking, que- they're, they're question- asking these questions in order to believe. And that's a big part of what faith like a child is, that I'm asking these questions and I'm trusting God that His answers are real and His answers are satisfying. By the, by the way, questions indicate belief only if you want an answer, right? We see this in in the political world all the time. Somebody's having a debate and they challenge somebody else, and when they start to answer the question, they interrupt them, change the subject, or do the shell game where you're like, I'm going to ask this question, and when you start to answer it, I'm going to change the question. You're like, this is so insincere, disingenuous. This is so phony baloney. Right? So, questions indicate belief only if we actually want an answer. Someone who asks without wanting to learn is challenging, is undermining, is expressing skepticism. Challenging is not believing, challenging is doubting. So, there's a, there's a way in which someone asks the questions that generates or indicates some genuine belief. Another way to overcome these tensions here is to ask your questions well. Ask like a child and ask them well. Um, To ask them well means there's a willingness to receive the answer and accept the answer. We can't ask hit-and-run questions. And I've, I've really struggled with this. As a pastor over the years, when I have an opportunity to have a conversation with somebody who's struggling with their questions, this is hard to accept. It's hard to accept that one question is asked, and then another question is stacked on top of that, and then another question is stacked on top of that, and then one on top of the other over and over and over again. And then I realize that this is not a question and answer conversation. This is a log your complaints against God conversation. Question after question after question after question. And I always think to myself, that's a really good question. And the, the answer to the question is out there. And I've mentioned this to you before, but there's an entire, and we could tell our, 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 our children this for, for, forever and remind them that for every question you have, there's an entire book full of answers. 
No hit and run questions. You don't get to ask a question and then keep on trucking like you never asked the question or like there's no answer. The Bible is loaded with answers and people who we trust have insights about understanding the Bible that help us ask questions and then wait and hear and understand, receive, and accept the answer to the question. It's so important. And as we think about having a community of faith that's vibrant, I envision a church family who's okay with the questions because their heart is ready to hear the answers. Really, really. And by, by hear the answers, I don't mean accept the first one, but I mean to ponder and consider the answers, to really, genuinely take time to listen. We cannot pursue faith in God through Jesus by asking gotcha questions. Some little snag, some little twist in the plot, and some little weird nuance that, that we already think, you know, uh, um, God is somehow going to get all frustrated because we're asking these questions and we're like a prosecutor and God's on trial. Ew. <laughs> that's, that's, so, that's so icky. Right? Imagine... Some of you don't think of your brains this way, but I think of mine as a tiny little grain on, on the sand, right? Just that's the size of my brain relative to this infinite God. And then I'm going to have this little speck of sand in my skull, and I'm going to call God into the courtroom because I got some questions for Him. I just want a couple of answers here, God, and you better be straight with me because I've about had it with you. And I'm, you know, just thinking about that, I just start to. My bones start to shiver a little bit. My blood starts to, blood pressure starts to go up. When you consider, when you consider a God who is supremely sovereign and infinite compared to us. By the way, in case you're wondering, are we really that dense and limited? I mean, we, we, we're a glorious creation that God has made and certainly have just unbelievable creativity and value and dignity and worth. I believe all that. But we haven't yet found ourselves out of the common cold virus. You know what I mean? That's how small our brains are. We're stu- we, we, if I'm not mistaken, not too long ago we discovered penicillin, right? Within Some of you, you're like, it's within my lifetime. Yes. Is that true for some of you? It's in your lifetime? Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. Did you know that? At some point or other, not too long ago, in our, perhaps some of you, in our lifetimes, someone gets a um, bacteria or, um, what is it, infection, no antibiotic. Dead and go. I, I would have died six times already. Six times already. So our minds are limited. We have often these intellectual questions. I don't mean to call anybody out, but our intellectual some, sometimes are just a convenient excuse for rebellion. We're doing our own thing, and then we tell ourselves the reason that we're doing our own thing is because we have these questions and we can't get any answers and God isn't really providing them. And these Christians that I'm talking to, they're numbskulls. They don't give me any realistic, scientific answers full of evidence. And I have recognized over time that sometimes we ask these questions, it's just, a, it's just, a, it's just rebellion. Other times we have genuine questions and uh, God wants to provide us real answers. So good asking Asking questions well means asking honest questions and then pursuing the answers. And that's going to help us get a lot, uh, uh, make a lot of progress. Um, so when we ask, we must desire both. Hear the answer and accept the answer. And if we don't understand at the very least, at the very least, if we don't understand it, we know whom the answer came from. 
we can trust who's providing the answer. So let's focus on the previous, the prior big question here real quick. What is belief? What is belief? To rightly answer this question, we have to define what it is. And I think it's helpful for us if we're going to start defining belief to, some of you like to do this, first you say, well, what is it not? What is belief not? And it's important for us to see that mental assent is not belief. Now, that word assent, not necessarily a common word for many of us. Basically, what I mean by assent is um, accumulating knowledge, mentally accumulating knowledge, gathering knowledge is what I would mean by assent, or accumulating knowledge that I agree with, or accumulating um, knowledge that I accept. It's a part of what belief, but it's not the entirety of belief. So the entirety of belief is not just getting to know more about God. Um, And by the way, understanding something and agreeing with something isn't the same as believing in something. Understanding something, agreeing with something, isn't the same as believing in something. So, these, uh, this belief system that you and I share, it has oftentimes this type of mental assent. Let me point this out. I think this is true for a lot of us. This mental assent, um, it tethered us, but it didn't transform us. Knowing stuff about God in, in a lot of ways has influenced us, right? We know stuff about God and His obedience or His grace. We know stuff about God and His, uh, and we know stuff about repentance. We know about a lot of stuff about the Bible. And in a large part, we would agree with it, but we haven't necessarily experienced transformation over it or life change through it. It influenced us, sure. Maybe it kind of kept us inside the fence of morality. Or it kept us within the neighborhood of living Christ-like or living like Jesus, making good decisions. But we weren't changed by it necessarily. Um, It is belief that recognizes or even expresses truth, but really cares, has affection, very little for it. It's possible to believe like this, by the way, um, do you know who else in the Bible, this is so another wild, we won't spend any time on this, but it's another passage of Scripture. Do you know who else believed in the Scriptures and it's kind of like shocking to discover? Even the, some of you know this, demons believed. Isn't that kind of weird? Like, so if we believe and receive Jesus and the demons believe, are they What? So, it's important for us to recognize that there's a kind of belief that is being talked about here in the Scripture that is a saving faith. And uh, so, this mental ascent has kind of tethered us to the Christian family or Christian behaviors, but it hasn't necessarily changed us. Um, So, what's the difference between the belief of a demon and the belief of a follower? What's the difference? What is it that gives our belief power? What is it that um, gives our belief the power to do something, not just to agree with it or accept it or to think about it or to acknowledge it. What gives us the ability to live what we believe? And here's the big answer to this question, the big answer here. By the way, it's going to be more than willpower. It's going to be more than self-discipline. It's going to be more than a greater understanding or a deeper study, and it's transformation. Transformation. This is what's commonly missing from our belief is 
there is a lack of action that it compels, right? So belief that collects knowledge and acknowledges and agrees and accepts that something is true but doesn't transform our actions is just mental assent. In other words, um, how many of you... Mm, what's a good way to ask this? Um, maybe, maybe about this uh, space stuff. Are, you, are any of you familiar with the new telescope that's out that's getting brand new, vivid images of space that are now with brand new definition? Are you familiar with that? We're now seeing things in detail in space. Um, I personally find that absolutely fascinating. And as I gather that knowledge of what the stars and the planets are like, I find it interesting. I accept that it's true, but i got to confess something. It doesn't change my life. I'm still more concerned about whether the soft ice cream I'm eating is custard or ice cream. You know what I mean? I'm much more catastrophic questions in my life over here. So, agreeing with something and knowing something doesn't necessarily mean that it transforms our, our actions. So, but transformation is what we're aiming for. And this is true when you think about it. In the book of Acts, Paul told the Philippian jailer, he said uh, very specifically, believe in the Lord Jesus and something will happen. You will be saved. There's something that goes along with that belief. There's something that comes along with that. So a belief that leads to salvation must be more than mental assent or gaining knowledge. And for that kind of belief something has to change. There's a fundamental shift that's required, and isn't this what our Christianity is built on? In the words of uh, an author that I'm reading here in, in, in our supplementary uh, reading, Christianity is built on transformational belief. That sort of belief is what the Bible calls faith. So when we talk about belief that brings transformation, here's the word. It's a better word. It's a more familiar word. It's the word faith. Faith is the word that I'm referring to, and that is the word that brings transformational belief. That quote is found in this book. recommend you read this along with uh, Mark chapter 9 with us, a book called Help My Unbelief, written by Barnabas Piper, who is um, uh, investigating this very topic, and, and we'll see more quotes from him. Faith is what differentiates a belief between a Christian and a demon. It's faith. So we'll get to dig into that. Faith is a belief that, transformation, uh, uh, that brings transformation. It brings action. It creates new actions, new behaviors. This is how someone goes from the old life to the new life or an old way of thinking and living to a new way. By the way, faith is what a skydiver has in his pilot, his parachute, and the plane to make the leap. Faith is what it takes. Now, I believe that parachutes work. I believe that pilots know how to fly planes. I believe that planes can get up in the air and actually transport people. But I don't have enough faith to skydive. I don't have enough faith to skydive. I always think, to my, I mean, people have said this, well, you know what, listen, when it's your time, it's your time. So I skydive because, and I'm always like, well, what if it's the pilot's time? Well, that's a dumb way to look at it. Right up in a commercial airline, what if it's not my time to go, but what if there's 200 other people? It could be their time. Not risking it. So when you think about, when you think about faith, 
Think about a skydiver who's leaping out of a plane because their belief that they have in their parachute, the plane, and the pilot is enough to cause them to spring into air. There's, a, there's an action that follows through. <laughs> Some of you are already saying, yeah, I'm with you. No way on that. Even more, even more, faith is what a child has in their parent. Even more, faith is what a child has in their parent. The object of our faith changes our thoughts, actions, and attitudes. The object of our faith. Not the amount of faith, but the object of our faith is what changes our thoughts, attitudes, and actions. It's who we have faith in. And children look to their parents for motivation and discipline and direction and expectations and love that they need and input just the way that Christians look to their God. And there is a trust relationship in that faith that, they may, that, they're, that they're going to get exactly what they need from their parents when it comes and when it happens. So when, when, when all we have, when all there is that's happening in our own heart and our own mind is mental assent, all we're doing is gathering more knowledge, gaining more information. Um, we, don't forget, that's a part of belief, right? I'm not saying, there are some preachers who would say, you don't need to learn. Holy Spirit is going to illuminate every possible truth. And while I believe that's true, I think um, disciples are learners, right? So when, when all we have is mental assent, do you know what we have to do? We have to base our entire life choices on how we feel. We have to base our entire life's choices on whether or not it makes us happy. We have to base our entire, all of our life's choices and actions based on our stresses, minimizing stress, managing stress. Knowing about God can even be a deterrent because it can so easily substitute for real relationship. Just knowing about God. By the way, Pharisees knew about God, right? They, weren't, they didn't have uh, the, the joy of their salvation, they didn't have a relationship with Jesus. They just happened to know a lot about God and the law. And sometimes knowing more is a substitute for real life change, just adding to the brain and adding to the Bible trivia and so on. So, what now? Well, we, we have to acknowledge, I'm hoping that you will, recognize and acknowledge that there's a difference between knowing about God and a faith that transforms. So, it's pretty simple. Just what I'm asking you to consider is just acknowledge that there's a difference. There's a difference between collecting information, mental assent, and a faith that transforms. This is difficult to discern, especially since, like I said, knowledge is a part of our faith. But the difference shows up in how I feel about what I'm doing for God. The difference shows up in how I find joy in following Jesus. I'm not um, being dragged around by duty. There's a sense of delight in obeying Jesus. Even when nobody notices, I'm satisfied. There's joy in my life, and it's real. I find satisfaction in giving to Jesus. I find satisfaction in sacrificing for Jesus. And if that happens, I know it's real. It has to do with how we feel about the actions related to our faith and what God has expected of us. If I find rest in talking to Jesus in prayer, and I'm finding rest in that, it's real. So, learning to recognize the difference doesn't usually, this is so disappointing to tell you, but it usually doesn't happen through a sermon. 
Recognizing the difference happens through seeing more and more clearly, and sometimes sermons help, seeing more and more clearly who Jesus is. In particularly, seeing, uh, having our hearts and our minds warmed and, and, and kind of like stirred up, but warmed more and more by the beauty of Jesus. Not just how useful He is to us, but by how beautiful He is to, he is to our hearts. And as we get a glimpse clearer and clearer of how beautiful Jesus is, what we discover is that we start to see the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Him for real. Now, sometimes this happens through a sermon that illustrates who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit goes to work opening our eyes to see and trust Jesus more and treasure Jesus more, delight in Jesus more. Sometimes, haven't you discovered this? Sometimes that comes through a crisis. Sometimes seeing the beauty of Jesus comes through grief. It comes through trouble and trauma. And uh, sometimes it comes through conversation with friends. Sometimes it happens like flipping a light switch where all of a sudden it's like, oh, I see it, I get it, wow, that really moved me, that matters to me. But oftentimes it's not like a flip of a switch. Instead, a lot of times this kind of warm-heartedness to the beauty of Jesus is actually more like a sunrise. It slowly comes up and it slowly starts to give more and more light to where you are and what you're doing and what you're able to see. It's a slow sunrise that sometimes breaks through. A little light is creeping in a little at a time so that you can see a little bit more at a time. How many of you would say, generally that's how it's happened for you over the years, right? It's a sunrise. And by the way, there are times when the sunrise is kind of like shaded or clouded by distractions. Sometimes it's heartache. Sometimes, of course, we know that this, this affection that we have has been uh, maybe distorted by some trouble or turmoil in our lives. But no matter how it takes place, it always happens through God transforming our hearts to live with an, with an affection for Him, with a joy in delighting in Him and knowing Him. Can you imagine a real faith that's genuine and then it's pervasive? That sunrise starts to shine in all the areas of our life our marriage, our parenting, our work, our neighborliness, the, the, um, the tensions in our home with our families and our kids and our parents, the decisions that we have to make in every stage of life that we get to. And just as you begin to realize one phase of life, you're starting to get the hang of what happens to that phase. Changes. It's on to the next one. We can have a deep... We can have a growing, we can have a vibrant and flourishing knowledge of God. And also, along with that, it changes our lives in full. It brings newness, new actions. Our true, true faith becomes fully transformational as that sunrise comes up and more and more light shines in. So, what happens when we believe completely. Another quote from Barnabas Piper here in his book, when we believe completely in the reality of God and the rightness of His word and way, it will give a shape and direction to our lives. When we believe that He's real and we believe that His way is right, then from then we um, see that His word and His way starts to, something starts to happen. Our lives take shape and we get direction and then the effects of it will be visible. We start to see some things. The fruit of our repentance 
starts to show up. And this is the kind of belief that we Christians seek. This is what we're aiming for, right? Um, There was a time where I felt like learning some things that I had never known before was exciting, and it was like a, a, it was like a, a almost like a trickle in. He's like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. And then over time, it's like this information has just like hyper exploded, and now there's almost like a short circuit that happens with all the information that's out there. I mean, have you recently started to look something up and you realize that there is an infinite number of angles on that topic? You're like, I wonder if this is wrong. And you read it and you're like, no, this, this looks like it's right. Someone sends you a text with a link and you're like, oh, no, it's all wrong. Then the next morning you do a little bit more research you're like, no, it's right. The wrong person was wrong. And it gets harder and harder to discern what this is. But this is the kind of Christian belief that we seek. It's not black and white. It's not present or not. It is like the sun. It shines like the sun. Someday it's bright and it sheds all the light. Other days it's covered. Maybe it's cloudy. Other days it's covered by distraction or maybe it's even dark at times depending on where we're at in our life. Deep in the valley, long into the cave And sometimes it just takes time to break through the clouds. But that sun shines brightly. And like the sun, belief burns brighter and hotter in certain seasons of life, certain seasons of our life. For many of us Christians that we go through this, we go through all the seasons. We go through the seasons of frigid weather, cloudy weather. It gets, we all know about the deep, dark winter and sometimes our life is like that. And when we go through these times where we don't see the sun for days or weeks because the cloud cover is so thick, it is real faith that always eventually shines through and brings some healing and that brings some hope to us. Sometimes it comes in a blazing glory. Sometimes it's not a blazing glory. Sometimes it's just a little morning light. But we have a different kind of knowledge And this is so important for us to see. There's different kinds of knowledge, just like there's different kinds of belief. So, when we're thinking about knowledge, lastly, we're doing something very, very specific. We're not just collecting a library of information. It's not just a shelf full of reference books about God. How can we be mature? We are pursuing relational knowledge. We're pursuing uh, uh, relational knowledge like we know our kids, right? I mean, some of you, when you hand off your kid to your babysitter for the night, you give your baby, you don't tell your babysitter, this is when they were born. This is the color of their hair. They have blue eyes. If you push the remote, that collar buzzes. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding on that one. Instead, what do you say? Well, Here's what we know about our kid. Our kid it sometimes fusses about this. This is sometimes how they're soothed. This is what they like. This is what they don't like. This is the time. This is the routine that they're going to need. In other words, we demonstrate and we express that we have a relational knowledge of our kid. We don't just know about our child. We know who our child is. And that's the kind of knowledge that's available to us when we're getting to know God. It's a relational knowledge. We can, um, this happens between two people who love each other. And 
relational knowledge of God leads to transformational living belief. So by all means, study God's Word. That's how we get to know who He is. But it is not primarily a blueprint for how to live. It's primarily a revelation of how, how lovable God is and how glorious He is. Today, my wife and I celebrate our 29th anniversary, 29 years. I thought 29 years was going to feel different. I really did. Thank you for that. Um, I thought it would feel different. Like when I thought of someone who was married 29 years, I thought they felt older. You know what I mean? And uh, anyway, but over the course of these, uh, of these 29 years, I've realized that I don't just pick up on things about my wife. I have to seek them out. I have to pay attention to them to really get to know. Um, in some sense, over time, I've had to learn to kind of study her. And in particular, um, to learn what it takes to respect her, to cherish her, to know how to order for her at a restaurant, which is still so, such torture. It's such torture. Thank God for texting. That saved us so much disappointment in our house when I bring home what she wanted and then realize, well, this isn't what you wanted again. But we learn how to uh, learn over time how to please her, how to surprise her, when not to surprise her, when to give her a heads up that someone's, something's coming down the pike, some, some way in which um, I remember and have learned how to make plans for her sake. And this is a different sort of knowledge when you learn these things about somebody. Right? So many people can learn about someone's birth date. Someone can learn a, some information about somebody. But this relational knowledge is the kind that is beyond reciting facts and offering descriptions. Instead, it comes through knowing a person, knowing them inside and knowing them out. Knowing that person's character and knowing their personality. And this kind of knowledge here is what shapes and transforms our faith. It's what we're seeking in Scripture when we're reading the Scripture. Because with this kind of knowledge, our belief begins to grow, and then it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. Let's pray together. Father, today we submit ourselves to You. We are grateful for um, the way that You have revealed Yourself to us. And I pray for our church family today, whether they're relatively new to our church family or relatively not. I pray that you'd nourish their belief today. I pray that you'd help them see you more clearly and savor you more deeply. I pray that their heart would be warmed, warmed and stirred with your beauty. Not the least of which comes from your willingness to lay down your life fully in our place to live the perfect life that was demanded of the Father in our place. And we pray today, God, that that would always and even freshly stir us for the kind of belief that brings life change. And we thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' name.